Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. So that you may leave now to go to Children's Church to get prepared to sing songs for Christmas in a few weeks. We'll be blessed to have our children leading out in the worship service. The rest of you can open your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. And as you're turning there, I want you to listen to a letter written by a bricklayer. How many of you are bricklayers by trade? Anybody? I don't see any hands. So good. Listen to a letter written by a bricklayer. Dear sir, I am writing in response to your request for additional information for my insurance claim. In block number three of the accident claim form, I wrote, trying to do the job alone as the cause of my accident. You said in your letter that I should explain the statement more fully, so I trust the following details will be sufficient. I am a bricklayer by trade. On the date of the accident, I was working alone on the roof of a new six-story building. When I completed my work, I discovered that I had about 500 pounds of brick left over. Rather than carrying the bricks down by hand, I decided to lower them in a barrel by using a pulley, which was attached to the side of the building of the sixth-floor level. Securing the rope at ground level, I went up to the roof, swung the barrel out, and loaded the bricks into it. Then I went back to the ground and untied the rope, holding it tightly to ensure a slow descent of the 500 pounds of bricks. You will note in block number 22 of the claim form that my weight is 150 pounds. Due to my surprise at being jerked off the ground so suddenly, I lost my presence of mind and forgot to let go of the rope. Needless to say, I proceeded up the side of the building at a very rapid rate of speed. In the vicinity of the third floor, I met the barrel coming down. This explains my fractured skull and collarbone. Slowed only slightly, I continued my rapid ascent, not stopping until the fingers of my right hand were two knuckles deep into the pulley. By this time, I had regained my presence of mind and was able to hold tightly to the rope in spite of my pain. At approximately the same time, however, the barrel of bricks hit the ground and the bottom fell out of the barrel. Devoid of the weight of the bricks, the barrel then weighed approximately 50 pounds. I refer you again to the information in block number 11 regarding my weight. As you might imagine, I began a rapid descent down the side of the building. In the vicinity of the third floor, I met the barrel coming up. This accounts for the two fractured ankles and the lacerations on my legs and lower body. This second encounter with the barrel slowed me enough to lessen my injuries when I fell onto the pile of bricks, and fortunately, only three vertebrae were cracked. I'm sorry to report, however, that as I lay there on the bricks in pain, unable to stand and watching the empty barrel six stories above me, I again lost my presence of mind and let go of the rope. The empty barrel weighed more than the rope, so it came down upon me and broke both of my legs. Please know that I am finished trying to do the job alone. How many of you have ever been there before? Two weeks ago, 
I was driving to Pueblo to spend some time with my dad before he was going to have knee replacement surgery. And about 35 miles out on I-76, I had a major blowout on my tire. And so I pulled over to the side of the road. I'm there on I-76. And the way that I pulled over on the shoulder, it did not give me enough room to get my tire tool under the car to jack it up. And so I was so frustrated that I I couldn't do it alone. So I called some people. I, I called Russell Hirschberger to come help. And in the meantime, between him trying to come and help me, one of the workers that works on the, um, the highway out there came and helped me, and he got this big, huge crowbar out of his truck, and he, he you know, lifted my car up, and we were able to get my spare tire on. And it was not a job I could have done alone. I, I couldn't lift up the car and jack it up at the same time. It was very frustrating. And so when you think about doing the job alone, how does this relate to the life of being a Christian in God's church? You see, in church life... There are many expectations upon a pastor to do things all by himself. There's this mentality out there a lot of times that the pastor is this hired gun and it's his job to do everything and anything in the church. And let me just say right from the very beginning, that is not biblical and that is not healthy for one man to do everything. So here's the bottom line of where we're going this morning. We're continuing to look at this early church in Jerusalem. And here's the issue. A healthy church is marked by shared ministry. Shared ministry where everybody in the body is doing his or her part to minister. They're working in their area of giftedness. It's a shared ministry. One group of people or one person does not do all of the ministry. And here's what happens. When one person has to do everything, one of two things happens. Number one, nobody gets ministered to because one person can't meet the needs of everybody and everybody gets frustrated because their needs aren't getting met. And number two, the person that's trying to meet all the needs eventually gets burnt out because it's just too overwhelming for that one person to handle. And see, that's what's facing this early church. Now, we've seen this church for many weeks now, right? The gospel is advancing in power. People are getting saved. People are getting healed. Jerusalem is being transformed by the gospel. There's probably over half of the town now is believers. And as we've seen week after week, when God is doing a movement in his church, who's waiting in the wings to attack? Satan. Satan is trying to throw his fiery darts at the church in an attempt to stop God's work. Now, we've seen some tactics of the enemy, haven't we? What was his first tactic to try to stop God's advancement of the gospel? Tactic number one was what? Persecution. If you remember from last week and a few weeks ago, these religious leaders came to the apostles and said, don't you dare continue speaking or preaching in the name of Jesus. We will throw you in jail. We will beat you. We will flog you. Did that stop the apostles from preaching the name of Jesus? No, they kept moving forward with boldness. That was their prayer. That that didn't stop the advancement of the gospel persecution, even though Satan tried to to, to get his claws into the church. What What was tactic number two? Tactic number two, if you remember from a few weeks ago, corruption, dishonesty, a lack of integrity. You remember Ananias and Sapphira? They lied, they embezzled money, they committed fraud against the church. They were were killed on the spot for their disobedience. Did that stop the church? 
Did Satan think he had won at that point? No, the church was continuing to stay together. They were unified. The gospel kept going forward with power. So Satan is trying to use persecution. It didn't work. He's trying to use corruption. It didn't work. So now he uses a third tactic. Now this third tactic is slippery. It's insidious. It's sneaky. It's hard to sometimes see. Because you see, persecution is pretty overt. You can see your enemy coming at you. Blatant hypocrisy and lack of integrity and embezzlement, Ananias and Sapphira, that's pretty overt. But the third tactic is slippery. What's Satan's third tactic to try to destroy this church? It's distraction. Distraction. What do I mean by distraction? The devil's going to try to distract the apostles from doing the job that they're called to do. And he's always going to try to get the the people of the church distracted from the main thing by murmuring and complaining and going against leadership. Now, what we see in the the, the early church in chapter 6 is not that big of a sin issue. It's not this huge, blatant, flagrant sin. It's a distraction. But if not dealt with, it's going to wreak some havoc in the church. Now, I've seen it many times in my ministry. Distractions. There's an argument over preference, not doctrine. Somebody's feelings get hurt, and they go off and cry in a corner, or they go and get their friends around them to take up their offense, and, and there's these petty arguments over this and that, and the next thing you know, there's complaining, there's gossip, there's murmuring, and behind the scenes, you have a mutiny on your hands, what started out as a little distraction. Let's just be real honest this morning about church life, okay? I want us to be very honest. Sometimes churches suffer from lack of leadership. It's just, it's a reality. Sometimes churches suffer from the pastor having to do everything and being worn thin. It's a reality. Sometimes churches suffer from lack of administrational expertise. Sometimes churches suffer from what's called the 80-20 principle. You know what the 80-20 principle is? 80% of the work is done by 20% of the people. Sometimes churches suffer from that. Sometimes churches suffer from explosive growth. The church is growing and there's all these uh, things uh, demanding the leadership and, and they don't exactly know how to handle the growth. Sometimes churches suffer from discrimination. Sometimes churches suffer from prejudice. Sometimes churches suffer from bickering. There's a lot of things that happen in the life of a church. And let me just say this as a side note. If you're looking for a perfect church, you've walked into the wrong place. Okay? Emmanuel Baptist Church is not a perfect church, and the reason why is because, look around. We're not perfect, are we? We're all sinners in need of God's grace, and God, by His grace, has called us to be His people. So I want us to see this unfold this morning, this distraction, this, 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 this episode in the life of the early church where we see a problem, a solution, and a result. So let's look at Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Acts chapter 6, 1 through 7. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit, And of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, 
and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now, let's first explore the problem. What's the problem? We see from verse 1 that the disciples are increasing in number. There's problems related to growth. Now, it's easy to manage things when you have 120 people in an upper room. But then when it moves to 3,000 and then to 5,000, and probably by this time maybe 15,000, 20,000 people, with more people becoming Christians and being added to the church, you're going to get more problems. More people, more problems. And so here's this issue. The Hellenistic The Hellenistic group was complaining that their widows were getting overlooked in the daily distribution. Now, what in the world does this mean? What's this this daily distribution that the widows needed to have to be able to survive? Now, first of all, we need to be very clear what the Bible says about widows. The Bible is very, very clear from the Old Testament through the New Testament about the church's responsibility to take care of widows. In Exodus 22, 22 through 23, God says, You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. Do not mistreat a widow or an orphan. By the way, just a side note, all throughout the scriptures, widows and orphans are really on God's heart when you look at the Bible. Deuteronomy 24, 17 through 19. You shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner or to the fatherless or take a widow's garment and pledge. But you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. If you remember the, the story of Ruth, this really comes into play. First Timothy Five, three, honor widows who are truly widows. And then James one twenty seven, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So the apostles were keeping in line with what the scripture says about treating widows. Now, in that culture, which was a male-dominated culture, if you were a widow, you, you didn't have a lot of rights, you didn't have a lot, of, a lot of resources, you had to rely upon either family members or the church. And so, obviously, the Bible doesn't tell us how many widows there were in this early church, but there was enough that it was causing a problem. There was enough that people were complaining. Now, there's two groups. The Hellenists are complaining against the Hebrews. Now, who are these two groups? Who are the Hellenists? Who are the Hebrews? Let me just remind you that the early church is Jewish at this point. This is taking place in Jerusalem. It hasn't spread out to the Gentile world yet. It hasn't gone out. We'll see that in a few weeks. But right now it's centered in Jerusalem. And there were two types of Jewish people. There were two types of ethnic Jewish people. There were the Hebraic Jewish people. These were the people that spoke Aramaic the language that Jesus spoke. These are the people that had the culture mostly of a a Hebrew-type culture. Now, the other group were the Hellenists. These were Greek-speaking Jews. They were more Greek 
culture. They would go to a synagogue where the language would be Greek. And so you had these two groups. They're both Jewish, but their culture's different. One's more of the culture of the Hebrews. One's more the culture of the Greeks. And so there's this perception of discrimination. Now, I don't believe that the disciples were discriminating against the Hellenists, but the Hellenists perceived there's some discrimination going on. Hey, you're taking care of the Hebraic widows, but you're not taking care of our widows. And so what happened? What does the text say? In those days, a complaint, a murmuring, a grumbling went on. Behind the scenes, they're questioning the leadership of the 12 apostles. Very similar to the children in Israel when they complained behind Moses' back. Remember, they murmured, they grumbled, they complained in the wilderness. Now, here's the issue. Regardless of the circumstances, complaining is sinful. Complaining is sinful. Now, they may have had a legitimate beef that their widows were getting overlooked. They, they may have had a legitimate issue with the overwhelming task of the apostles. They may have had a legitimate issue with the lack of administration, the lack of organization. But how did they handle it? They complained. They murmured. They gossiped. This is not the gospel way to handle conflict. As a matter of fact, Paul says in Philippians 2, 14-15, Do all things without grumbling or questioning. Wow, that one hurts. Do all things without grumbling or questioning that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Do all things without grumbling. 1 Peter 4, 8-9. Above all, keep on loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now I understand. Sometimes there are legitimate issues in church life. There's legitimate issues in family life. There's legitimate issues at your job where there are times where you will be frustrated. You will be upset. You will not like the way things are run. You will not like the decisions that are made. You will not like uh, the, the way things happen. You may feel left out. Now, it's how you respond to those things that shows your maturity. Let me give you an example. Let's just say this plays out, okay? Not that this has really ever happened, but let's just pretend like it happened. There's a lot of times where somebody goes to the hospital or somebody had surgery and I never found out about it. Okay, I never got the email. I never got the connection card. I never got the, 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 you know, the, the phone call. And so somebody goes to the hospital and then the pastor doesn't visit them. And so they get upset and say, you know what? The pastor didn't visit me. Now, the, the way that you handle this is one of two ways. You can come directly to me and say, you know what, Pastor Sean, I was in the hospital, you didn't visit me. And I would apologize and say, I'm sorry, I didn't know about it. I, if I would have known about it, I would have gone. Or the other way to respond is, you know what, maybe he just never got the message. He never knew I was in the hospital. I'm just going to blow it off and move on. And so the, the, the issue is, how do you take it further? Let's say it's any issue, any issue in church life where you felt slighted, you felt left out, you felt like your needs weren't being met, you felt like somebody over, there, there was an oversight, whether it was from the pastor, whether it was from the elders, whether it was from the deacons, whether it was from another church member. Let's just pretend like in some situation you felt slighted, overlooked, and maybe it was innocent. What happens next is what causes conflict in the church. Do you address the issue head on and go to the person or... 
Do you go on a tirade behind the scenes? Do you get friends to help you gossip? Do you work behind the scenes to start speaking maliciously about leadership or whoever? Do you get people to take up your offense? Do you go and start this little movement of grumbling, of complaining? Do you start doing that? That's what oftentimes happens in church life. Now, I'm not saying this is happening right now. I don't, I don't know of any mumbling or complaining or grumbling or, or any movement behind the scenes. I'm not aware of that. But the issue is, I've read the Bible. Just look at the nation of Israel in the wilderness. I know from personal experience that when you get people together in close proximity, there's going to be differences of opinion. There's going to be a lot of issues going on. And how we deal with those things shows the maturity we are as Christians. And so they were complaining. They were grumbling. The Bible says this is not the biblical way to handle conflict. But there's another issue that's going on here too. The distribution of the daily food or money, whatever it was, we don't know if it was food, we don't know if it was money, it could have been both, but this daily distribution to the widows was a very important task. But it was not good stewardship, nor was it the responsibility primarily of the 12 apostles to do that. They were called to a different ministry. Not a better ministry, not a more significant ministry, just a different ministry that fit within their giftings and their calling. And so what's the solution to this problem? Here's the problem. You got all these widows that need help. It's not happening. The the, the 12 apostles, it's too overwhelming of a job for them. It's not their responsibility to solely do that. What's the solution? Well, you see, a church has two very important needs in in the life of a church. There are physical needs and there are spiritual needs, and both are equally important. Let's talk about physical needs for a moment. There's a lot of people in church life that are just hurting. They may have help, they need help moving. They may be sick. They may be having issues with job. They may have some financial problems. They just need physical help. They need their physical needs met. And the church needs to be meeting the physical needs of the people of the church. If, if the church is going to be what God has called the church to be, the physical needs of the body need to be met. It's crucial. But on the same token, the spiritual needs of the church need to be met. There needs to be preaching. There needs to be teaching. There needs to be discipleship. There needs to be Bible study. There needs to be ministry. And so here's the issue. One person or one group of people can't do all of that. One person or group of people cannot meet all the physical needs and all the spiritual needs of the church. And so in the case of the early church, the apostles said, we are called to the ministry of preaching. Our job is to preach, to teach, to devote ourselves to prayer and the word. It's not our responsibility to take care of the daily distribution of the widows. Not that we're below, above that, not that that, that, that we're not, that that we don't want to do that. It's just not what God has called us to do. Now, let me just tell you something this morning. Maybe you know this, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. As your pastor, I simply cannot meet all the needs in this church. Can't meet all the needs. And I don't think God has called me to do that. I don't think it's biblical, number one. I don't think it's healthy for one man to try to meet all the needs of this church. My calling primarily is to be the shepherd of the flock to stand before you week by week and to feed you the word of God, to shepherd you through a preaching and a teaching ministry. Now, that doesn't mean that I won't visit you in the hospital. It doesn't mean that I won't be there to counsel you. It doesn't mean that I'm not going to be there for you. But my primary responsibility is, is to corporately shepherd us towards godliness. And so let me just tell you what the greatest gift is that you can give me. 
the greatest gift that you can give me as your pastor is the time to be allowed to study, to pray, to be in the text, to do sermon prep. So that every Sunday when I stand before you and preach, you know that I've, I've spent time agonizing in prayer, agonizing in Bible study, so that when I come and give you a message, you know I've spent time with the Word. It's not good stewardship for me to be the custodian of this church. I've seen churches where the pastor does everything. He cleans the toilets. Now, I'm not above cleaning toilets. If I'm called upon to do that, I will clean toilets. Am I called upon to lead the youth ministry? No, Andrew is. Am I called upon to lead the children's ministry? No, Marcy is. Am I called upon to do everything? No, the pastor cannot do physically everything in the life of the church. The same thing here with the apostles. It's not biblical. It's not healthy. Sometimes in church life, and thankfully it doesn't happen here, but I have pastor friends. I have pastor friends that are nothing more than glorified errand boys for the leaders of the church to do whatever their beck and call is. And they're running themselves ragged doing everything. And some pastors have control issues where they feel like they have to do everything. I know some pastors that have to go to every committee meeting. I'm thankful we don't have committees a lot at this church. Some churches have like 25 committees and they're meeting every night of the week and the pastor has to be at every committee meeting. Some pastors, it's a control issue. I've got to be involved in everything. There's some things that, you know what? I don't care. A lot of times people will come and ask me, Sean, do we need to make this decision? Make the decision. I don't care. I appreciate you coming and asking me. I appreciate the pastoral role. I appreciate the respect you have for me. But sometimes it's just, you know what? You're empowered to do that. You don't have to have my approval. Now, some things you have to have my approval. But a lot of times, just do the ministry. Now, the scripture here says in verse 4, we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. That's the primary job description of a pastor. Did you know that? The primary job description of a pastor is to pray and to devote themselves to the ministry of the word. Before administration, before organization, before running programs, before doing all this stuff, it's prayer and the ministry of the word. First Timothy 5.17 says this, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. That word labor there means to work to the point of exhaustion in preaching and teaching. Now, you may not know this, but I block out my mornings for study time. I tell Sherry and Tarina, my ministry assistants, no telephone calls, no interruptions, uh, no appointments. I need the morning for uninterrupted time of study. And so I try to guard that pretty heavily because in the life of a pastor, there's a lot of distractions. And so I found for me, the morning is just a good time to pour over the text. I mean, I spend time praying over the Bible, translating from the Greek and the Hebrew, consulting commentaries, praying, and just sweat, sometimes sweating so that when I come here on Sunday morning, I actually know what I'm talking about and you can trust that I know what I'm talking about. Let me say this. You can tell as a church member when a pastor is not prepared. You can tell it. You may have been in a church before where, you, where, where somebody said something like this. You know, I really love pastor so-and-so. He's a neat guy. He really comes to us in our time of need. He loves our children. He visits me in the hospital. He's a really, really nice guy, but I absolutely get nothing from his messages on Sunday morning. There's nothing there. Now, I'm not saying anything against those types of pastors. I'm just saying that one of the things that you guys desperately need from me as your pastor is this. You need me to be a man of prayer and the word. 
I don't know if you know that you need that. You need me to be a man devoted to prayer and the ministry of the word. Because here's what I want to do. I want to give you my best every Sunday. And I'm just going to say this. A church will never rise above the level of its leadership. Show me a church that rises above the level of its leadership. It usually does not. There may be some exceptions. So if the leadership is not healthy, if the leadership is not involved in God's word, if the leadership is not growing, the church very rarely rises above the level of leadership. And so I desire to give my best to you every week. Now, I struggled with this sermon because I felt like I'm talking a lot about me. And you guys know I don't like to talk a lot about me. But as we go through the scriptures here, I'm just seeing a principle here that that leaders, whether they're pastors or youth pastors or, or whoever, they need the time and the church's permission to devote themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now, I love what the apostles do here. They make an executive decision. What do they do? They appoint for lack of a better term, deacons or table servers to share the load. Now, it's interesting because it doesn't mean that the, the apostles didn't take care of any of the physical needs and the deacons don't take care of any of the spiritual needs. No, it works both ways. It's just organizationally in the life of the church, the, 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 the apostles said, we need to make an executive decision here. And I love the way they do it. It wasn't autocratic. It wasn't mandated down. It wasn't like, here's what you guys got to do. No, there was ownership with the church. What do they say? What do they say? Look there at verse 5. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you. Congregation, you take the ownership to pick out some men. Pick out for yourself seven men. Now, the apostles didn't pick the men. The apostles gave the ownership to the body to say, we as a body of believers have given the responsibility to pick some more leaders in our church for shared ministry. Now, there were some parameters. It wasn't like a good old boy system where anybody and everybody could be chosen. There were some biblical qualifications. You can find most of those biblical qualifications in in 1 Timothy chapter 3. But right here, just specifically in this text, he gives three. Three things the church needed to be able to examine in these that would be table servers, that would take care of the, spirit, the, the physical needs of the church. What did he say? Verse 5, verse 3. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of, number one, of good repute. Good reputation. The word that we get there, we get our English word witness from that word repute. A witness. Almost like being on the witness stand. You've been attested. You've stood up under trial. People are able to see your life and say, you meet the test of being a person of good reputation. Secondly, he says, they need to be filled of the Holy Spirit. These need to be individuals that you can demonstrably see the fruit of the Spirit, the power of the Spirit. They are Spirit-filled, Spirit-controlled individuals who, who, who just have a godly lifestyle of Spirit about them, the Holy Spirit. And thirdly, they had to be people of wisdom. Now think about this for a moment. If you've got 40 to 50,000 people coming to your church and a lot of these widows complaining, it's going to require some wisdom to figure out how to minister to them. Now in our deacon ministry here at Emmanuel Baptist Church, there's been some times where we've had to pray for wisdom because we've had to make some hard decisions among the deacons and benevolence and how we give money, who we give money to, how much money we give to. And so we need the collective wisdom of the leaders. And again, there's ownership. Now, 
The apostles are still leading. They're unapologetic about leading, but they're giving ownership to the church, saying, okay, we are the leaders. We've got to devote ourselves to prayer and the word. We're going to take care of the preaching, the teaching, the discipleship. But you as a church, we've got to have these needs met. So you pick out from among yourselves these individuals who meet these qualifications so they can take care of the spiritual needs of the body. And that's what happens here in Emmanuel. When our appointing deacons or appointing elders, we as the body say, okay, You guys nominate. You guys tell us. You guys give us input. You guys pick out from among yourself. And there's a screening process. There's a nomination process. It's not where just the elders come and say, okay, here's the slate of deacons that you get. There's there's ownership from the body where you guys have 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 a say in that. But what I want you to really see from this whole passage of Scripture was that it was a shared ministry. It's a shared ministry. Think of what would happen in the early church if the apostles did everything. Would it be healthy? Can 12 guys minister to over 10, 15, 20,000 people? Now, it says they picked seven. I don't know if the scripture tells us later on that they picked more, but there was a shared ministry. Everybody was working in their area of giftedness to make sure that the entire body's needs got met. The pastor's not doing everything. The staff's not doing everything. The elders and the deacons aren't doing everything. The entire body is doing the work of ministry to minister to the entire body. Ephesians 4, 11-13. I want you to notice what Paul says and what he doesn't say. Okay? Now I'm going to misquote this to see if you catch it, all right? So pay real close attention because I'm going to misquote the scripture here, okay? But I'm letting you know I'm going to misquote it just so you can catch it, Okay? And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to do the work of the ministry. No. What does it say there? Pastors, teachers, spiritual leaders have been given what? To what? Equip. Doesn't mean that we don't do ministry, but our primary job is to equip who? The saints. The body of Christ to do what? The work of ministry. For what? For the building up of Christ, the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. God gives spiritual leaders to the church to help equip the entire body to do the work of ministry. Nowhere in the Bible will you ever say a verse, show me afterwards, that says, the pastor must do everything. The elders must do everything. The deacons must do everything. There's an 80-20 rule where 80% of the work is done by 20% of the people. You will not find a verse that says that. The Bible says that our job is to equip the saints. That is, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord that's connected to this church, your job is to do the work of ministry in your area of giftedness so that the entire body gets ministered to because one person or one group of people can't possibly meet all the needs in the church. Now, we've seen the problem. The problem is these widows were getting overlooked. It was lack of organization, lack of administration, whatever you want to call it. But what was the solution? Okay, we need to share ministry. We need to spread the load. We need to allow the apostles to do what they're called to do, allow the deacons to do what they're called to do. Now, what's the result? What happens when a church shares ministry? When it's not bottlenecked by one group of people doing just one particular thing or one group of people trying to do everything. What's the result? There's three results we see happen. When they make the shift, when this church explodes in growth and there's a major problem and they can't meet the needs, when they make a decision, what's the result? And I have seen this happen in my ministry. When you make serious changes about empowering people to do ministry, there is growth. 
Let's see the result. There's three things that happen, and we all find them in verse 7. A little snapshot summary of what happens when they made this shift. First of all, the word of God continued to increase. The word of God continued to increase. And that's a, that's a theme we're going to see throughout Acts. The word of God increasing. When the church is organized, when everyone's working within their giftedness, when there's ownership, when there's shared ministry, guess what happens? The word increases. Why? Why does the word increase? Because it's not just dependent upon one person. We've all been equipped to go out and spread the word and minister. Now, the word of God is an amazing thing. Listen to what Isaiah 55, 10 through 11 says. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. Some translations say void. It shall not return to me void or empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. When God's word goes out in power, it's not in void. It's going gonna, it's gonna to accomplish something. God's word goes out in power. And the more the people are ministering, the more people are sending the word out, the more God's word goes out in power and the word of God increases. Now, Hebrews 4.12 says this, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So the first thing we see here is that the word of God continues to increase when there's shared ministry. It's not just related to one group of people or one person. When everybody's doing ministry, the word of God increases. But secondly, notice what it says. The number of disciples multiplied. Disciples multiplied. Not added, but multiplied. I want you to notice the shift in language here. Back up in verse 1, it says, when the disciples were increasing in number. Verse 7, the disciples increased and multiplied. He's not talking about the 12 disciples here. This is the very first time in the book of Acts Christians are referred to as disciples. Let me shatter a myth. There's a myth out there that really bugs me, and I'm going to shatter it this morning. So just bear with me. The Bible knows of no two-tiered system of Christians. I've heard some people say, when you become a Christian, you're a basic Christian. And then later on, when you get more super spiritual, then you become a disciple. There's a Greek word for that. It's called baloney. (laughs) The moment you become a Christian, you are a disciple. Every single one of you who is a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a disciple. Now, you may be on different, on different growth spurts along the trail, but, but you don't have to wait for the super spiritual stage to become a disciple. I think that's intimidating to Christians, thinking that, well, I'm just a basic Christian, but then I have to really, when I really arrive, I become a disciple. No, you are a disciple the moment you have faith in Christ. A disciple just basically means a learner. One who sits at the feet of Jesus and learns and follows. But notice that they were multiplying it's not addition growth it's multiplication growth but thirdly this is one that's interesting what's the third result of shared ministry and you may read this like that's kind of a weird statement a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith now do you understand what's going on here what have we seen the past three weeks Who are these religious leaders that are throwing the apostles in jail, flogging them? They were mainly what? The priests. 
But now these who were formerly persecuting the, pro- the apostles are now getting saved. A great many of them. Those who went from persecuting and throwing the apostles in jail are now repenting and believing in Jesus Christ as their Savior. And there's multiplication growth in the church. Persecution could not crush this church. Satan tried. Corruption, dishonesty could not crush this church. Satan tried. Distraction could not destroy this church. Complaining could not crush this church. A lack of organization could not crush this church. The gospel of Christ is more powerful than the arrows of the enemy. Now, let's make this very, very poignant and practical to where we are as a church. As a church, there's a lot of things that we are facing that I want us just to stop and think about. If Satan's trying to crush something that's going on here, or if we're, um, I don't know if we're experiencing persecution, or if we're experiencing dishonesty or corruption, or if we're experiencing uh, this issue of, of complaining or distraction, but I want you to think about some issues facing our church. Okay, first of all, here's the first issue that, that, that we've really been praying about. I don't know if you realize this or not, but on Wednesday nights, we have a large number of youth and children coming to this building that don't know Jesus. If you're here on Wednesday nights, this place is packed with children and youth who for the very first time are hearing about Jesus. And you need to be aware of that because we need to be praying for the salvation of these children and these youth. Are we as a church praying for the families? Are we praying for for them to be disciples of Christ, that the disciples would multiply greatly, especially in the area of our children and youth? Second issue that I think that Satan is, is dealing with our church right now is the issue of marriage. A lot of marriages are under attack. If there's one thing that Satan is going to do, he's going to try to destroy marriage. Now, I understand there's, there, there's issues and there's, there's things going on, but are we praying for marriages? Are we praying for healthy marriages? Are we praying for reconciliation? Are we praying for God to come in in His grace and do a work among couples to where the gospel would be lived out in healthy marriages? What, what else are we facing as a church right now? There's a lot of you that are experiencing health issues. Cancer, sickness, chronic pain. There's a lot of you that are just in pain. A lot of you facing health issues. Are we praying for one another in relation to health issues? This coming Friday is a very important date. This coming Friday, our lawyers will be meeting with the judge for what's called a status conference. We haven't had any type of traction in our, in our, in our case for about a year now. So hopefully this Friday, something will happen. Whether good, whether bad, we don't know. It's all up to God. But we should be praying like crazy that God would have his way in that meeting when the legal counsel meets to discuss our case related to this building. So let's stop and think about Emmanuel for a moment. Will Satan crush this church? Will sickness and cancer and brokenness distract us? Will broken marriages never be healed? Will children and youth never get saved? Will there never be an end to this building situation? I hope you don't believe that. I want us to be people of brave faith that can believe that God can do the impossible. But here's how it's going to happen. It can't just be one person out there praying, one person out there doing everything. It can't just be a small group of people out there doing everything. It will be all of us sharing in ministry to see a mighty movement of God do what only God can do. So are you praying? 
for your spiritual leaders? Are you praying for Pastor Andrew? Are you praying for Marcy, our children's director? Are you praying for me as pastor? Are you praying for our elders? Are you praying for our deacons? You know what my prayer is for us as a church? My prayer is that we would experience what this church experienced. Verse 7 should be just an amazing verse. The word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly. That's my prayer. That the word of God would increase in northeastern Colorado and that disciples would be multiplied to the kingdom of God through the power of the gospel. When the gospel infiltrates every aspect of our lives, everything we do. So let me ask you one last question. Are you an encourager or a discourager? And are you willing to step up to the plate and say, you know what? I'm going to share in ministry. I'm not going to leave it out to just one person or one group of people. I'm going to discover my gifting. I'm going to use my gifts. I'm, I'm going to share in the ministry of the church because there's too many needs that are going unmet. And I realize that one person can't do it all. One group of people can't do it all. The church will be healthy when all of us are ministering to all of us and everyone's needs are getting met through the body coming together in unity. So let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. And I'm just going to ask you to pray to see if, well, whether we like it or not, the scripture says, do all things without grumbling or complaining. So there may be some complaining or grumbling in your heart this morning. It could be over a situation at work. It could be over a situation in your family. It could be over a situation in this church. It could be with another person. But in your heart of hearts, you're complaining, you're grumbling. Would you just take this moment to go before the Lord and say, Lord, forgive me, and and would you release me from this? Holy Spirit, would you do a work to help me not be a complainer or a grumbler? Even if it's a legitimate beef, and just pray that that God will work the situation out. It may be a legitimate reason, but the the way we respond really shows our maturity. Not by complaining or grumbling, but by praying by being a, a, a problem solver, by being part of the solution, by being an encourager, not a discourager. So would you just spend some time this morning praying about that? And number two, praying about, would you be involved in shared ministry? Would you, would you just take it upon yourself? So you know what, I'm going I'm to discover my gifts. I'm going I'm to minister to the body. I'm going to be part of shared ministry so that one person or one small group of people doesn't do everything. I, I don't want Emmanuel to be the 80-20. I want it to be the 100 zero that where 100% of the people are doing 100% of the work. Spend some time in prayer this morning. Father, sometimes in the quietness of the moment we're confronted with the truth about our hearts. Lord, I know in my heart it's very easy to complain, to grumble, to criticize. And Father, we sometimes overlook that and say, well, it's not that big of a deal, but it's a sin. And Lord Jesus, every sin that we commit you had to experience on the cross. So it's not a little thing. 
It's a big thing. But we know, Jesus, through your cross, you've forgiven us of these sins. You can free us to move forward in power and in grace, to be encouragers, not discouragers, to be problem solvers instead of naysayers. So, Father, whatever you need to do this morning to to shape our hearts with your sovereign hands, as we sang earlier, would you shape us to be the people you've called us to be? That there would be shared ministry. Lord, that, that, that there would be ownership. There wouldn't just be one person or one small group of people doing all the work of ministry, but Lord, that it would be a shared ministry so that the body of Christ would grow to maturity. So Father, thank you for this body. Lord, I, I, I praise you every day for this church. I praise you for the people in this church. I praise you for their heart. I praise you for their love. I praise you for their encouragement. I praise you for all the ways that Don and our family have been ministered to by this church family. Father, it is a blessing to be part of your family. As awkward as it is at times, as, as uncomfortable as it is at times, as warts and all, Lord, we are a family. And we need each other. May we truly be the church you've called us to be. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to sing a closing song here in just a moment, but I do.